Well, hey, good morning, New Life Church. So glad you're with us today. Uh, let me wish you a, a happy belated Canada Day and a happy 4th of July for all you Americans out there. I happen to live with four of them. Uh, so I just hope you're having a wonderful long weekend, whatever you're doing, wherever you are. And I can only imagine that uh, some of you right now, maybe you're joining us in your living room or your bedroom. Maybe you're out on your deck enjoying this beautiful morning. Maybe some of you are sitting uh, around the campfire in your campsite worshiping with us together. Some of you may be in your cottage far from Stonewall. And as much as we'd love to be together uh, worshiping in person today, what a beautiful thing it is that we can be in all these different places and yet united in worship, united in mind, and in spirit this morning. And so um, uh, I, I just pray God's blessing on you as together we come and we open up ourselves to the, to the good gifts that He has for us from His Word uh, today. Now, one of the things we would normally do when we get together is we would just kind of acknowledge and celebrate those milestones that take place in the lives of, of people in our church family. And so, just want to take a moment to offer our congratulations to Debbie Stewart and Dan Croy, who uh, joined their lives together in marriage earlier this week here in this space. And so, uh, Debbie and Dan, we just pray God's uh, blessing on you as you begin married life together. Also want to acknowledge those that were baptized here on our church lawn earlier in the week, Haley and Aaron Wolf, uh, Kingsley, Williams Green, and also Sherry Slater. It was just a wonderful sight to see uh, these guys and gals step into the water, declare their faith in baptism, and to see many of you coming out, filling the parking lot with vehicles and all honking your horns in unison uh, as our brothers and sisters uh, came up out of the water. It was a real beautiful sight. Can't wait for more of those. You know, Erica, my wife, and I, we, we've gotten into the habit of enjoying walks together most evenings. And uh, we, we kind of live close to the edge of town, so normally we walk, I think it's maybe 12th Street on the west side of town, and we'll walk up and down 12th Street just enjoying the scenery. Now, I, I come from the arid grasslands of southeastern Alberta near Medicine Hat, and so, I mean, it'd be really common there to, to just to stand and do a 360 look in every direction and not see a tree as far as the eye can see. And so one of the things I love about Stonewall and area is just how green it is how lush it is. And so I just enjoy that as we walk together most evenings, looking at the different trees and the plants and the flowers. And uh, often Erica and I might just kind of comment on a particularly beautiful tree or plant. I can only imagine that Jesus and his disciples did kind of much of the same thing. They spent a lot of time walking, obviously in those days, from point A to point B. They spent a good chunk of every day on the move together, on their feet. And as they did, they talked, and Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and the spiritual life. And it's really no surprise that the most common imagery that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God, to describe the Christian life, is the imagery of trees and vines and plants and crops, the things that they would be walking by and seeing all the time as they walked by vineyards and orchards and fields of Wheat. And so you get an example of this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 16 to 20, where Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, By their fruit you will recognize them. Now, by them he means those who follow after him, his disciples. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And of course, again, by them, he's talking about us, those who would follow after Jesus. Christians, Jesus says, you will recognize a Christian by their fruit. Now, of course, there's many different types of fruit, literally speaking, right? I grew up, you know, with, with the main three apples, oranges, and bananas all the time. But, but there's just almost an endless variety of fruit out in the world. And maybe you can remember a time in your life when you discovered a new fruit and how exciting that was, something you just had no idea existed. I remember as a, a young man, I was maybe in my early 20s, coming across this thing I would find out is called lychee. Have you ever had lychee? Uh, it, it's, it's almost like these massive grapes, fleshy grape-like uh, fruit that's covered in like a, a bark or a shell that you have to peel off. And I remember the first time I saw these little alien fruits eating them and just this explosion of flavor in my mouth. And it was such an awesome experience that, that I remember to this day. And I'm sure you've got an experience like that where you discovered a new fruit and how wonderful uh, that was. I mean, there's many different types of fruit. And so when we moved to Stonewall, one of the great things about the place we bought from Randy and Joan Porcher was that it was full of different types of fruit trees and plants. And so in our yard, we have apple trees, and we've got a plum tree, and we've got Saskatoon berry bushes, and we've got a grapevine, which is kind of neat, and we've got raspberry bushes. And it's one of the cool things about our property is that we have all these different fruits that it produces. Jesus says, you're going to recognize them, his people, by their fruit. Now, what would that fruit be, though? I mean, that really is the question. What would that good fruit be that would identify us as those belonging to Jesus, those who are true Christians? I mean, if an alien were to come and look at our lives and bring a report back to their master in a different place, what would they know would characterize us, that would make us Christians, what would that fruit be? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer. We get it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which Darren just read a few minutes ago. Probably a passage that many of you know well, maybe you've even committed to memory. This is called the fruit of the Spirit. And it says, by the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which you probably will have memorized as patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These nine fruits of the Spirit, these are the things Paul says identifies the true follower of Jesus. And here's kind of a big point. As we begin a new series this morning, kind of an overarching uh, principle of this series is this. The Christian life is not primarily about knowledge accumulation or behavior modification. It's about character transformation. And that's what we're going to see, that the Christian life is not primarily about accumulating knowledge, modifying our behavior, but it's by having a transformed character. In other words, the Christian life is not first and foremost about having like a really well-developed theology, right, about 
what the Trinity is or really knowing the Bible well or having memorized a whole lot of verses. Those are all good things that we should pursue. But that's not primarily what the Christian life is about. That's not the fruit that identifies the true follower of Jesus. And neither is that primary fruit kind of moral and religious activity, how many times you go to church or pray or volunteer in different ways or the sort of cleanness of speech, you know, that you don't use profanity like others, all these things that might identify a religious and moral life, although those things may be right and good. Paul says those are not the primary fruit that will identify the Christian, but instead it's the, it's the fruit of our character. It's not what we know, it's not what we do primarily, it's who we are. Who we are that makes us, identifies us as those belonging to Christ, those who have the character of Jesus Christ. And so in this series, this nine-week series, we're beginning here together this morning. We're going to look one by one at these nine fruit of the Spirit that are produced in a Christian's life. We're going to look at what they are, what they mean, and how we can live in them, how we can cultivate these fruit in our lives. And so what I want to do this morning with our, with our first bit of time here is just to think about these fruit. How are we to think about the fruit of the Spirit? And I want to suggest to you that Paul shows us here five characteristics of this fruit of the Spirit. And if you've got like a little pad of paper, you might want to jot down these five characteristics of this fruit. The first thing that Paul shows us is that this fruit is spiritual. This fruit is spiritual. He doesn't call this the fruit of the Christian, the fruit of the believer. He calls this the fruit of the Spirit. And that word spirit, it re- represents God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. And he contrasts that earlier in Galatians 5 with, with a different sort of fruit. Well, he calls them the acts of the flesh, which Darren already said represents kind of our sinful nature, our sinful, selfish desires. The flesh is contrasted with the Spirit. And really, this is the contrast that, that Paul is making throughout this book, this letter written to this church in the region of Galatia, which is in present-day Turkey about 2,000 years ago. They needed to hear about life lived in step with the Spirit because there was something wrong with this first church. And he identifies this problem about which this whole letter is about back in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. This is what Paul says there. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask you, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing in what you heard? So Paul talks about this contrast here. He says that these Christians, they began by the Spirit, which is Paul's way of saying that 
these first followers of Jesus, they became Christians by believing what they heard. Okay, that is the work of the Spirit. They believed what they heard. And what did they hear? They heard the gospel. They heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you hear at the baptism on Tuesday, I made a distinction between good news and good advice, right? Advice is instruction about how you ought to live, what you ought to do, but news is something very different. News is about something that has already taken place. It's already happened. The gospel literally means not good advice. Hey, here's some wisdom about how you ought to live a good life. The gospel is good news about what God has already done for you and secured for you through His Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect one who took on flesh, became one of us, lived the perfect life that we fell short of, and on the cross died your death in your place, and when He rose from the dead again, secured your lasting eternal life with God, a life that you receive not through your efforts trying to keep the law, keep good advice, but through believing what you heard, to believe the good news, to put your faith, your trust in the perfect work of Jesus on your behalf. Paul says that's how your spiritual life began. Not trusting in your own work, but putting your full trust in what Jesus had done for you when you heard that good news. And when that happened, you received the Spirit of God because that's God's promise to all who believe upon Jesus. God, by His Spirit, Makes a per- renews a person, gives spiritual life. There is a new spiritual birth as God places His Spirit within those who believe. And so what he's saying is our salvation, our relationship with God began with grace. But he says to these people, you guys, you're starting to revert back to the old way of thinking and trying to relate to God. You're, you're reverting back to works, trying to earn God's favor by your own efforts, trying to find your worth in your works. Don't revert back to that old way of thinking and living and relating to God. That is not of the Spirit. And so these Christians, in reverting back to this old pattern, he's not saying that they lost their salvation, but Paul is saying don't lose sight of your salvation because we can do that, can't we? I mean, maybe you can think back to the time in in your life when you heard the good news of Jesus, that He has done everything for you to, to, to cancel all of your sin and all of your guilt and to give you eternal life that nothing can take away from you. What good news that was, and you gave yourself in faith to that. But you know what? As you travel through life, it is so easy to revert back, as these Galatians did, to a different way of thinking and acting where we have to secure for ourselves through our own efforts a right place with God. And so these Christians, these Galatians, they, he says, you've lost your freedom. The freedom comes from believing the good news And now you think life is just about good advice and you've exchanged that freedom for this enslavement to fear, this pressure, this stress that comes with feeling like you have to secure your own salvation by your works. Don't go from spirit salvation to self-salvation, Paul says. This fruit does not come from our own efforts. It is the work of God. That's what it means when Paul says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Like, just like your spiritual life began not by your own efforts, your own work, but it was the work of God by His Spirit within you, 
That is how the whole whole Christian life works. It is the working of God within you to bring about this life that Jesus has secured for you. This is the fruit that comes from God's work within you. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And so the gospel, the good news, is not not just that God forgives you and gives you like a fresh start, a do-over, a clean slate, I mean, that would be good enough, but it's way better than that, right? The gospel is that God forgives you, and then He fills you with His Spirit to bring about true and lasting change, to give you a new heart. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves continually is, each and every day, will we make Christ our treasure? Will we look to Christ always in every situation as the source of our life? Or will we, are we reverting back to finding our salvation, finding our worth, finding our righteousness in ourselves, trying to save ourselves? Paul says this fruit is the work of God in us. It is the fruit of the Spirit. So that's the first characteristic of this fruit that identifies the Christian. It is a spiritual fruit that is so important. This is God's work within us by His Spirit. The second thing Paul shows us is that this fruit is internal. It's internal. You know, it's interesting. Earlier in Galatians 5, Paul talked about the acts of the flesh, and then he listed them, right? There was debauchery, and there was drunkenness, and there was sexual immorality, and there was dissension and factions and all of these bad things that come from these these desires within us. And you might think he would contrast the acts of the flesh with the acts of the Spirit or the acts of righteousness. Like, like don't don't engage in sexual immorality, but instead sexual purity. Don't don't engage in drunkenness, but instead sobriety. Don't, Don't be greedy, but instead be generous in the way you give. And yet, that's not what Paul does here. Instead, he talks about the inner life. He talks about the heart. Not outward acts, but an inner character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are things, attitudes of the heart before they are ever actions in our hands. And so what what Paul is saying is that fruit, this fruit comes from roots, because all fruit comes from roots, right? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. He's just talking about good agriculture here. Where does life flow from to create the fruit? Well, it flows out of the ground, through the roots, up the vine, up the stalk, into the branch, and at the end of the branch, fruit is created. Life flows in that direction. Life doesn't flow in the other direction. Fruit comes from the roots, and so I heard a story, kind of a funny story of a, a bit of a rebellious teenager who would always sneak out of his room when he wasn't supposed to in the night. He'd climb up of his uh, bedroom window on the second level. There was a big uh, fruit tree, kind of a dead fruit tree that had a branch by his window, and he would climb into the branch, and he would escape, and, and his parents were always quite upset with him. And so finally one day his dad said, enough, I'm cutting down the tree. It hasn't borne any fruit for so many years. Anyway, the tree's coming down. And so that night this kid, he had a great idea. He took all these apples, and he taped apples to the ends of these branches. And so when his dad woke up the next morning and looked out the window, he saw that this tree, this fruit tree, had all these apples on it. And the father was amazed, and he said to his wife, honey, come over here. Look at this, apples on the tree. It's incredible. This tree hasn't bore fruit in years. 
And even more than that, it's a miracle because it's a pear tree. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think in that story, there, there's a bit of insight here, and that's that, you know what, fruit doesn't bring life to the tree. You can't just tape apples onto the end of a branch and give life to the tree or tape apples onto a pear tree and make it an apple tree. That's not how it works. Life comes from the roots and produces the fruit. The fruit doesn't give it life. The life produces the fruit. In other words, coming back to this idea that the Christian life is not firstly about modifying our behavior. It's not about different actions. It's about character transformation. It's about a real heart change. It's all about the internal life. And we need to hear that because I think as as Christians, we tend to see or maybe measure the Christian life, the spiritual life, in terms of gifts, manifestation of gifts and acts and abilities as evidence of the Spirit's work within us. But you know, Jesus and, and Paul never do that. Over and over again, they say that the only test that the Spirit indwells a person, that a person is a Christian, is the growth of this inner fruit, this transformed character, right? And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, you know, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. I gain nothing. I might have all these outer signs and and display all of these gifts, but if I have not love, I'm not a Christian. It's not real, which is why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and work many miracles, all these great displays of spiritual power, and Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. Because it's not about the gifts and the abilities, the marker of true spiritual life is character change, transformation. This is inner fruit. That's the second thing. This fruit is internal. Thirdly, this fruit is gradual. Christian growth doesn't all happen in one fell swoop, this sort of change. It's a gradual sort of change, like fruit going on a tree. It takes time. And as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our life, we cooperate with the work of God within us because we do have a part to play. It's not just about putting up our feet and eating Cheetos and let God make us different. We know it doesn't work that way. We need to, we need to cooperate with God within us through worship, through prayer, through community, through the study of His Word. And as we do those things, we will find that growth happens Within us, And we might find ourselves in a situation at some point where all of a sudden you realize, wow, I acted differently in that situation than I would have a year ago or a few years ago. And we might surprise ourselves with the change that we didn't realize was happening in us as the Holy Spirit was at work changing our hearts. So that fruit is gradual. And the fourth characteristic we need to see is that this fruit is inevitable. It's inevitable. You know, Paul doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit can be love, joy, peace, and all these other things, might be. No, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. The fruit of the Spirit is. You know, in these walks I have with Erica, there's a little pond by our house, and there's an asphalt trail around this little pond. And we noticed something the other day, which is pretty remarkable, and you've seen this too, this asphalt trail laid not all that long ago, right in the middle of it, there's an opening, right? This little chute 
this little reed is popping out somehow, having been buried under this thick layer of asphalt, somehow that little shoot has penetrated, has broken through that asphalt and is now coming up. And when you look at that, you go, this is incredible. How does this happen? Because if you or I, as strong as I am, and I'm incredibly strong, okay? I mean, if, if I were to punch that asphalt and try to break through that with my fist, I mean, I would break my fist before I ever broke that asphalt. And yet, this little seemingly powerless seed underneath given time, has actually this incredible power to break through even the thickest, strongest layer of cement, rock, asphalt to break through. I think that's a beautiful picture of God's work within us. You know, some of us, when we came to Christ, some of us have thicker layers of stone or asphalt than others. Maybe there's more hardness there. We might seem that change would be difficult, or maybe sometimes we would think might be impossible, and yet God's Spirit will break through any, any rock, any hard thing, any, any surface. It will break through. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, And so this is something that we need to see. We need to believe that this fruit of the Spirit is inevitable in the life of those who trust in Jesus. Because it's not our work. It's the work and the power of God. It will be there if we follow Jesus. And lastly, this fruit of the Spirit is symmetrical. Symmetrical. Now, it's kind of interesting. Paul doesn't say, these are the fruits of the Spirit, and then list these nine fruits. He says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. He uses that word singular, and I think that's really important. This is not fruits. This is one fruit. And so, as we look at these nine fruits, what we want to see is there's, they're not really nine fruits. They're really nine different attributes of one fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. In other words, all of these things will be true of the Christian. They will all be growing okay? They, they, they kind of come together. They are a package. Because, you know, we might look at those nine and go, you know what? Yeah, I've got a few of those, but others, no, I'm not good. I, I don't have that, right? But I've got five of the nine, so hey, that's over 50%. I think that's a passing grade. That's okay. But we might notice that, that we're actually naturally stronger in some of these characteristics than in the others because, you know what, in our natural temperament, we might kind of at least display what we think are some of these fruits of the Spirit. Just naturally, because of our own personality, our own temperament, we might have some, we might think, and and not others because of the sort of person we naturally are. And so some people, they might seem really joyful, jovial, but they're really unreliable. They just never seem to follow through. They're not faithful. And if that's the case, if there's not faithfulness, then that joy that's there, that's not a joy that comes from the Spirit. That's That's just kind of a jovial personality. Maybe that person is very much an extrovert, and they have this joyful sort of expression. Or, or maybe someone might look like they've got this fruit of gentleness, but boy, they're really anxious, and, and they really just kind of have no boldness or courage, uh, and, and we might find that they lack peace in their life, but they've got gentleness. And what that might mean is that gentleness is not the gentleness that comes from the fruit of the Spirit, but it is more just, it might be more like a, 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 a timid sort of demeanor in a person. That might be a natural gentleness, not something that comes from the work of the Spirit, because when the Spirit brings forth these fruit in our lives, they all come together. They are nine attributes of this 
one fruit. And that's what I mean when I say that this fruit is symmetrical. It's not that we get some and we just miss out on others, but that God's Spirit will grow all nine of these together in our lives. And what I want to do is just take the last few minutes to look at the first one of these fruit. Love. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. And I don't think that's any surprise that that's the first there because we hear an awful lot about love. It seems to be kind of that primary gift from which all other gifts flow out of. And so Paul will have already said earlier in Galatians chapter 5, he'll have talked about love a few times. He says in verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then in verse 13, you brothers and sisters were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. And so this is one of the markers of the Christian life is love. And he'll actually say to the church in Corinth, uh, sorry, in, in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, he'll say, hey, you as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so he's giving this church kind of that same charge, the fruit of the Spirit. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these per- virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So there's something special about love. Love is something that binds all together, all of these other eight attributes kind of flow out of the reality of love. They're all expressions of love in relationship with God and others. And so we'll see that this is the primary work of the Spirit in our lives, that primary change. John may talk about this more than anyone else in 1 John verses 3, verses 16 and 17. Sorry, verses 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who has been born of God knows, for everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Whoever has been born of God loves, loves because God is love. Love. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this very first fruit mark in the life of the Christian is this, this heart transformation where true love grows. Now, what is love? Because, man, if there's one word or one idea that's kind of been massacred or emptied of all its meaning in our day and age, certainly it's this word, love, right? Because we use that in so many different ways, some very trivial, some very deep in meaning, right? We can say to our spouse, I love you, or to God, I love you, but then I'll I'll say to a friend, I love that outfit, or I love Veronica and Schmontfat. Or we might talk about how I love my kids or how I make love. We use it in so many different ways, and it's kind of been emptied of its power and its meaning. And so we have to ask the question, what is love? What is it? And you might already know that the Bible uses four different words in the Greek in the New Testament that are all translated in English, love, and each one is very different. But this love here, this fruit that grows in the life of the Christian, is agape love. Agape is the Greek word for this love. And a bishop by the name of Stephen Neal, he defined it this way. This love, this agape love is a steady direction of the will towards another's lasting good. A steady direction of the will towards another's lasting good. Or here's my version, my definition, simply put, of love. You'll see it on the screen. And if you've got a notepad, maybe you want to scribble it down. This is love. Love is the unconditional commitment to the good of another. 
The unconditional commitment to the good of another, it's not first an act, it really is an attitude, it's a posture of the heart towards another to seek their good unconditionally. It's not self-serving, it's the opposite of being, about, of, of being self-serving, it's self-giving, the giving of self to another for their good. Uh, Timothy Keller, that great pastor and writer, this is uh, an example he gave of what this sort of love is. He says, imagine what you would feel if a person asked to marry you, but you came to realize that they would not want you if you did not come with an inheritance. How would you feel? Well, you would feel used, right? You would not feel loved at all. Now, we all know that we don't feel loved by someone unless we are loved for who we are and not for what we bring to him or her. And this analogy helps us to understand the motivation of the gospel. When we thought our works saved us, we were serving God for what we could get from Him. We were using Him. But after the hope of the gospel settles in, we, and we see the grace and beauty of God, we start to love God for who He is. What he's saying there is, is, is love is to serve a person for their good and their intrinsic value and not for what that person can give to us, right? Which would not be self-giving, that would be self-serving. And you know what? There can be a bit of a false love that masquerades. It's really a counterfeit love that's actually not selfless. It's, it's more like a selfish affection, which is a counterfeit to love, which I think we see and maybe manifest all around us, where you treat someone well because of how they can make you feel about yourself. Do we do this sometimes? We treat someone well, supposedly loving, in order to get from them something that we want, something that makes us feel good about ourselves. And so we use social media for this all the time, don't we? Leaving a really nice complimentary comment, maybe on someone's picture or post, maybe hoping or expecting that they're going to return that favor and make some really positive remark back towards us. And you've probably been here where that person didn't reciprocate that gesture of love. And how did that make you feel? Maybe you got angry about that. You felt a little bit bitter that you didn't get from them what you gave to them. And if we feel that way, if we feel that sort of anger or resentment, maybe that's an indication that what we gave was not actually love because love is an unconditional commitment to the good of another. It demands nothing in return. Maybe that was its counterfeit. That was selfish affection. Using another to get what we feel we need for ourselves. And so we have to ask ourselves, how much of our love is, is really not about seeking good for another, but about seeking good from another for ourselves to meet one of our needs? Because that's not what love is. True godly love, agape love, is an unconditional commitment to the good of another. And so Paul will describe this in great detail in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, love believes all things. It hopes all things. It protects all things. Love is not easily angered because it demands nothing in return. It's not about getting something from somebody. It's about giving something to or for somebody. Love believes all things. And, and Paul's talking there about a love that we have for one another in relationships, not primarily about our love for God. This love is a love for one another, for other 
people. Love believes all things. And as I was thinking about that, um, I, 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 it hit me. I have no idea what that means. What does it mean that love believes all things? And I think what that means is, is not that love is gullible, but that love seeks to understand. It seeks to understand the other, where that person is coming from. When, when, we get some, when we get anger or we get harshness from someone or someone hurts or wounds us, instead of being easily angered and retaliating, what love does is that love seeks to understand the other. Where did that come from? Why did they do that? What hurt is carrying in their, are they carrying in their life? What wound is this coming from? How can I minister to that wound and love this person? That's what it means for love to believe all things and not to be easily angered. And Jesus said in John 13, if you exhibit that sort of love, that is so unnatural to the flesh, that is so of God, that when the world sees that love, they will believe that you are my disciples. That will be the indicator. You know what? The indicator that someone is a follower of Jesus, a true Christian, is not a zeal for God. That's not what... Jesus said, you might know people that exhibit this seemingly great zeal for God, but they don't really exhibit love for other people. And Jesus doesn't say that the world will will know that you are my, my disciples if you love God. It says, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Wow. And that fruit, it doesn't come from the flesh naturally. We cannot create it. We can't command it. We can't conjure it. That is the work of God in us, but we can cultivate it. And, and the word cultivate, I had to Google it. I don't really know what that means. It's a, bit of a, it's a farming term, right? It means to prepare for growth. It means to assist in growth. It can't create the growth, but it can create the con- conditions in which growth can happen. That's what it means to cultivate So this is the work of God within us to bring about to birth love in our hearts, but we can cultivate and prepare ourselves and assist in that growth. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I think Paul gives us a clue here in um, earlier in Galatians 5 verse 6 when he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself through love. And, And what I hear... Paul's saying there, what I think that means is that faith, our faith in the gospel energizes love, animates, empowers love. When we put our faith and when we renew our faith in the good news that Jesus has done it all for us, that we are secure in Him and not in our own selves and our own works, that faith births, energizes this love in us, it grows that love for one another. And so this is what John, I think, is alluding to in his first letter there, First John chapter 3, verses 16, when he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down His life for us. 
So, so through Jesus, through the gospel, I mean, there's a few things. We know what love looks like. We actually now have a, a definition, a perfect representation about what love is. But it's better than that. In Jesus, we don't just know what love looks like. In Jesus, we experience that love ourselves. It wasn't just that, now we know what love looks like. Jesus laid down his life for some people. Now you do the same. No, it's now we know what love looks like. Jesus laid down his life for us. For you, in Him, we experience the true fullness of what love is. We encounter it in the gospel. We are loved by God through Jesus. You are loved by God in Jesus. And so Paul, or John will go on, he'll say in chapter 4, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. And what that doesn't mean is God's love is just an example to follow, but that His love actually creates, animates our love. It's not just an example to us, it is our energy. It energizes and empowers our love. Because look what he says in verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's God's love received and encountered in our life that births in us love for one another, he says. And in verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. God doesn't live in us Because we love one another, we love one another because God's love lives in us. And when God's love lives in us by His Spirit, it births in us, it grows in us love for one another. Kind of like touching a picture I I have is maybe you've been to one of those like child museums, right, where you've got that orb, that energized orb full of electricity, and you put your hands on that orb and that energy comes through your body, fills your body, and makes your, maybe your hair stand on end, and it's all static. And I think what Paul is saying is that faith energizes our love. When we put our hands and keep our hands on the gospel, the, the love of God in the gospel is transferred into us and, cre- and energizes love within us. So, I love that picture of, of putting our hands on the gospel, and I think that's what Jesus means when He says, remain in me. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but abide in me. Remain in me. Keep your hands fixed on the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And when you do that, God's love flows into you and through you to all that you touch. And so, how do we cultivate the love of God in us? How do we assist in that growth? Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, that is those who know that all that belongs to Christ belongs to us, those who have their hands fixed on that energized orb that is the gospel, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by, by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ have and are crucifying the desires of the flesh. 
putting to death day by day those desires that come up within us. And those aren't bad desires. We often think of those, you know, sinful passions and desires as, as, as if, you know, like, yeah, sexual debauchery or drug use or something evidently very terrible. But that's not primarily what he means. He means the, the, the inclination to try to find our worth and to secure ourselves in our own efforts. It's over-desires. It's taking good things and putting too much weight, creating idols out of good things, like the, the desire to be loved by others, the desire for financial security, good desires. But when those become over-desires, become idols in our lives, and we try to seek in those things our life and secure our worth in those things. And he says, as those who believe in in Jesus, by the Spirit, we need to crucify those desires, which means going back to the gospel and laying our hands again and again on the, on the truth of the good news by praying like a prayer like this. This is the sort of prayer that, that you might pray to crucify those, those sinful desires when, when we feel tempted to revert to that, to that old way of living to try to secure ourselves. Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this thing, whatever that thing is. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's affirmation from another person. Maybe even it's the love of a spouse that, that, that has been denied us. Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this thing. Otherwise, I have no value. But it is a pseudo-savior. But to think and feel and live like this is to forget what I mean to you, how you see me in Christ. By your Spirit, God, I will reflect on your love for me in Him until this thing loses its attractive power over my soul. I think that's what it means to crucify those desires. It means to pray that sort of prayer, to come again and again and remain in Christ and treasure Christ and put our hands on the gospel to engage God's love by faith every day. And when we do that, that will empower this love, the growth of this love in us, which is the first and greatest evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fruit of love. And so as we bring this to a close, a couple of questions that I want to ask of you, and they'll be on the screen here in a few minutes at the end of the service. And if you're with someone else, um, a, a spouse, or a family, maybe you want to take a few minutes once this is done before you move on with your day to have a bit of discussion around these questions. The first question is, how do you see the fruit of love growing in your life? How do you see the fruit of love growing in your life? And, and another good question to ponder and, and to discuss is, are there any desires, fleshly desires, that I need to crucify in order to grow in love, in order to live in love? to keep in step with God's Spirit. As we close, and before we have one final song of worship together, I just want to invite you into a moment of prayer wherever you're at right now. If you want to get on your knees, you can get on your knees. If you just want to close your eyes and bow your head, I want to invite you into a moment of prayer. And I want you to just take that moment and, and, and just m maybe, like, I, I, I love it. I always find it helpful when I pray to actually have a posture in my own body that coincides with my prayer. Maybe you want to reach out your hands and just imagine that you're putting your hands on, on that orb, on the gospel again, right? On that object of your faith, on Jesus. And maybe you want to put your hands there and, and you want to thank God for His un, 
earned, unmerited, unconditional love for you. Just take a moment to thank Him for that love. Reflect on that. And I want to close with a prayer that John Stott, who is a, a, a giant of the faith in the 20th century, a prayer that John Stott prayed every single morning. It'll be up on your screen. And I, man, if through this summer, through this series on the fruit of the Spirit, you would want to maybe jot down this prayer, print this prayer, and pray it yourself every morning, I think that would be a great thing to do. I just want to invite you, wherever you are, maybe you want to stand here as we go into worship. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me, to pray it together out loud. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.